If there is nothing else, then we are going to take a scripture reading tonight. And our scripture will be found in the book of Amos chapter 4. So give you a few extra moments to find it. It's one of those buried in the middle. Uh, the book of Amos chapter 4. And we're going to read all 13 verses <clears throat> Excuse me of that um, chapter. And hopefully we'll uh, discuss a few things that happen preceding this chapter. That's Amos chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 1 and read down to verse 13. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, I didn't know how I was going to explain this, but in the very first verse, ladies, he calls the women of this text cows. So you can take that however you want to, uh, but certainly that's who he's talking to, and you can discern that from the context. I don't intend to preach on that tonight. Amos chapter 4, verse 1 through 13 says this, Hear this word, ye kind of Bashan, that are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, Bring and let us drink. The Lord God hath sworn by his holiness that, lo, the day shall come upon you that he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. And ye shall go out of the breaches, every cow at that which is before her, and ye shall cast them into the palace, saith the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression and bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years. And offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this liketh you, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord God. Verse 6. And I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and want of bread in all your places. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. And also I have withholden the rain from you, when there were yet three months to the harvest, and I caused it to rain upon one city, and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon, and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. So two or three cities wandered unto one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have smitten you with blasting and mildew, when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased, the palmer worm devoured them. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Your young men have I slain with the sword and have taken away your horses. And I have made the stink of your camps to come up unto your nostrils. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. For lo, he that formeth the mountains, and createth the wind, and declareth unto man what is his thought, that maketh the morning darkness, and treadeth upon the high places of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. 
That'll conclude our reading this evening. And though we're going to look at hopefully the entirety of this chapter, our title this evening is going to come from verse 12 Prepare to meet thy God. Prepare to meet thy God. We have a song that we sing that is called Prepare to Meet Thy God, or at least that's the main thrust of the song. But it's very different in its tone and in its call than what Amos' message is. Or in other words, as we can say with many phrases, context matters. And that song that we sing is a very good song. It's a song of invitation. We're showing people we love and we're admonishing and exhorting them. We're saying, you need to be ready. You need to prepare yourself because you're going to have to stand before God and meet him. And so I would say when I sing that song and when I hear it sung, I think in terms of both an invitation, but nestled into that invitation is a heart of compassion. It's to me, when I sing it or think of it, I would maybe even go as far to say of desperation, playing with people, please get ready to meet God. Now, I don't know, I would assume that the songwriter, this is, songwriter got that from this particular text. Nonetheless, the meaning of this text is not one of invitation. It's not one pleading with people to be ready. It is rather a declaration of final judgment. And hopefully, we'll make that clear as we go through the scriptures tonight. We want to talk about, for just a few moments, the judgment of God. Now, not in the sense although it's inevitable that this is where it would lead, not in the sense necessarily I don't plan to go into tonight standing before God in judgment, though ultimately that's what we're talking about. I'm not going to try, unless the Lord leads me in that direction, to build a big picture for you that the book of Revelation and, and other scriptures give to us tonight. But rather what I would like to talk about is God's attitude and God's behavior in judgment. We told you two nights ago that... Satan's constant attempt is to undermine the character of God and that that's how he ultimately deceives people is by painting a picture of God or distorting the behavior of God in such a fashion that it might create distrust in us towards him so that we would not trust and seek him. And perhaps no more profession or occupation, there might be a few on equal terms, but is it necessary to have a sterling character and reputation than that of a judge? Because the ultimate act of a judge is often final and it is going to impose on people a severe discipline or punishment that at times, depending on whom you're standing before, is unalterable. In other words, it's going to affect your life drastically and there may not be anything you can do about it. So 
We want to look at God tonight, and we want to consider a few characteristics of God's judgment this evening. The first thing that I want to point out tonight that actually comes from the preceding chapters is that God is a fair judge. You know, as a dad, I try to be fair with my kids. I really strive for it. But inevitably, I'm I'm tempted to say daily, it feels like daily, but I would at least say weekly, my kids will get in a scuffle and they'll argue and fight and somebody will have done wrong and they'll be accusing one another back and forth and some of them are at such an age, I know that they can't express themselves fully and so I'm trying to take into consideration the handicaps of them, the behavior, the, the typical characteristics perhaps of some to manipulate and change the story or leave out details and they all are arguing their case. And in the end, I strive to be a fair judge but even at times when I'm able to gain all the information And at those times when I'm able to even determine what is just and fair or what rather what has actually happened, then sometimes I'm left with the inevitable question, what am I going to do about it? How much punishment or discipline rather is a better word to use. How much discipline does each child deserve for their part in the wrongdoing? The mastermind of a crime generally gets punished a lot more than people who are helping. And how do you discern and judge that? And then we find stories in the media and in the news of of people of judges or law enforcement or people who are unfair judges, who they take advantage of their position and they'll, and I'll say this, I think the recent movement over years, over the years to undermine law enforcement is not primarily stemming from society. It's stemming from the spiritual problem in order for people to escape just punishment for what they deserve. And so it's manifesting societally very often, but the undercurrent is an attempt to escape Just punishment. And then when people go through hardship, when people are punished for their sins, then they often distort God's character and they say things about how he is unfair. Or they look at other people, but I want you to know this morning that, or this evening rather, that God's punishment is going to be, or God's rather discipline, God's judgment is going to be universal. Or in other words, nobody's going to escape the judgment of God. You know, what's interesting is that oftentimes, and as we go in the book of Amos, what we find is that the the prophet begins, and he begins levying judgment on all of these foreign nations and foreign cities. And so he starts, I went and I looked at a map from that time when I was reading over the first three chapters, or really the first two chapters, and he starts in Damascus. And I looked at a map, and Damascus was a long way from Israel. And so I would imagine that this this shepherd man, this man Amos, who's a prophet, we don't know a lot about his life, but what we do know is that he was a shepherd, he was lowly, he was not schooled like many of the prophets, he was likely not formally educated like some of the prophets that came from Levitical tribes or such. He's coming and he's proclaiming judgment to Israel, but he starts by condemning behavior of those a long way away. 
And I would imagine in the eyes of the Israelites, whenever he is levying out the judgments for the sins of those people afar off, that their mind would say, yes, they deserve that. If you go to college and take an ethics course, if you take a political science course, if you take philosophy of any sorts, very often when they begin to speak of the concepts of evil, what we do is we take people from long ago like Hitler and we break down their behavior because it feels so far away. And very often people use that to justify their own behavior based upon what people did wrong years ago. God starts by pointing out his judgment against people a long way away. But then I began to take the map and he went to the next group of people. And guess what? Got a little bit closer. Still not of the same bloodline. Still people that the Israelites would condemn. But it got just a little bit closer. And then the next group of people. I believe there were six or seven total that he, that he did. And then finally I think he strikes a little chord because he starts talking about Edom which were distant relatives to the Israelites and really closely located to the people of God there. And then he says, Judah. See, at this time, the kingdom was divided. There was Israel on the north and Judah on the south. Amos is writing to Israel, the northern kingdom, and then God gets right next door. But not just right next door because Ammon and Moab were right next door as well. But he gets to their own bloodline, their own family. And then finally, the rest of it is a judgment against those people. I want you to know tonight that of all the, you know, the media will, will take people and they'll demonize people. And, and one thing that social media has done that I would say is negative is it's given us this mentality that we have a right to stand in judgment of other people only having half the information. Somebody sends out a 140-character tweet, and me and you then become experts as to their sense of what they've done is moral or immoral. Or we hear a snippet of, of something on uh, Fox News or CNN, and we hear parts of the story with interweaved biases by those pundits who are talking, and then we stand in stark condemnation of everything those people are doing, and it has made us think that we have the right often to look down and to judge and to uh, determine all the facts. But what I have learned about most situations when there's two sides to a story is that the side that you are hearing is very incomplete. Thus, you ought to reserve judgment until a lot more information is known because often all it takes is one little detail barely being turned and it reorients the whole story and makes the victim, it makes the, victim the guilty party in the eyes of the crowd, whenever you just get that one piece of information, everything changes. Got to be careful. You see, God, he's going to judge all of us. And he warns us not to judge, but rather to commit judgment on the deeds of people to God and God alone. The Bible teaches us that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He alone knows and can discern the thoughts and intents of people's heart. Did you know that behind every behavior is also an intent? And sometimes a person's intent from the eyes of God will either cause that person to stand in condemnation and judgment before God, or they will stand vindicated 
David before God, and it goes to a part of their heart that none of us can see. And so what ought we to do? Rightly give judgment to God. Because listen, have you ever met somebody and you were eager for them to be judged? I have. You know, somebody who gets away with things all the time. They're just sly and they're crafty and they're manipulative and you can never nail them down. And and if you're like me, I've had those experiences where, so then I start to craft an argument. And listen, this is how how I am over years. I wait and I take a little fact and I watch the behavior and I set it aside in my mind. Then I see another thing they do and I set it aside in my mind. And what I'm wanting to do is I'm waiting for the day I can confront them about it. And I can say, look, it's clear as day. You're guilty. I've done that before. And I walk away and I think, how did they do that? (laughs) I got to the end of that conversation and I was feeling guilty and sorry for them. And yet I know what they have done was absolutely wrong. But listen, on that final day where God judges people, rest assured and no lost sinner that God will judge every single person with fairness and complete accuracy. When we talk about God and we talk about how great he is, oftentimes we get into the obvious character qualities that we should praise him for. But that's one of those things that I'm just amazed by that God can do that. You know, like, isn't it amazing that when all the human race stands before God in judgment, God can accurately judge each man and woman for their individual deeds and, before their, and for their collective behaviors and can issue judgment precise and accurate. God can do that. You and I can't. We ought to give judgment to God. Lost friend, know this for certain. There is coming a day where God will judge you. This is my opinion I think it's substantiated by Scripture, but I'm not going to press it super hard. And that is, I think people that are granted the opportunity to hear the gospel will be held in significant, or I would say, as significant as judgment of those world leaders who commit horrible atrocities in the sense that, though they're not guilty for the harms done against other people, they are guilty of treading upon the innocent shed blood of Jesus Christ and neglecting this insurmountable evidence, both that he has revealed in his word, which has been preached in their hearing, and which he has spoken to their hearts. God is going to hold them in great judgment for that. You see, truth be told, Going to church is very dangerous. It's a very dangerous thing. It's a very sobering thing. Because once you hear something that is true and sent from God, you are under an obligation to obey it. And you can try to drown it out. And you can try to rationalize beyond it. And you can try to bury it as deep in your memory. But one fascinating thing for people who often get saved later in life is they often, what has 
continued to follow them all of those years as they recount the stories of getting away from God, of going into college and submerging in that culture or going into the workforce or going into the army and submerging into those things. And then they get deep into marriage and kids and all the responsibilities that those things have. Oftentimes what you'll hear when they recount their experiences, when I was just a young kid, my grandmother took me to church and these people did this and it made an effect on me. And all of those years later, that was the thing that was constantly growing back. Listen, it's not because that person has a good memory. It's because God lodged something in their heart that one day he's going to hold them accountable for. And out of his benevolence and grace, God would constantly through their life, bring it back into their memory in hopes that they would respond to that act that took place so long ago. It's God's grace. And that's one thing that our our author here, Amos, he begins to get up. Listen, here's the point of this first thing I want to tell you. Don't think that God's judgment is far off. It may be for now, but it won't always be. Then we turn to chapter 4. Amos is in the middle of judging these people. And in verse 6, he begins to bring out something that's very important to notice. He begins to talk about how God's judgment, you've got to read really close, but it's progressive. It's the same thing you do as a parent. Right, your kid, because the end goal of what God is trying to work is repentance. I want you to know this today. While you live in this life, God's primary mode of judging people or of acting upon people's life in a, in a, in a, in a, in a way that is discomforting, his primary way of doing that is progressive and it's disciplinary. Or in other words, God's primary intent is to provoke you to change what you're doing. You know, that's what I told, I remember one day Judson... Uh, got really upset at me for, for spanking him. And he got real, real mad about it. Because perhaps over the course of those few weeks, he's gotten a lot of spanks. And so he finally got frustrated, and he aired out those frustrations after one of those. And so I asked him, I said, Judson, did you know that I do it because I love you? And he kind of backed up, and I what? So yeah. And have you noticed that preceding the spanks, First, I told you, well, here's the rule. I made sure if you're going to do wrong, you're going to do it with your eyes open. God does the same thing. You remember Genesis chapter 2? God told Adam, don't eat it and don't touch it. Right? He gave him the law ahead of time. And then he said, if you do it, that day you're going to surely die. Right? God's judgment is not predicated upon our ignorance. Rather, he first informs us. And very often he does it in a gracious and loving manner. He says, this is wrong. This is sinful. And he sets up institutions like the home, parents, to teach us what is right and wrong. He sends us his word that we might read it for ourselves. Even our laws have a place, according to the scriptures, in teaching us the difference between right and wrong. And so God informs us of this wrong. And then very often the first time we transgress, he just doesn't come down in violent horrible way and, and punish us, what does he do? His gentle chastening, I'll say this, voice comes first. Have you ever noticed that? Oftentimes it comes in this subtle way. You just feel a little pricked. You know what you're doing is not right. 
And so God says, don't do that. And he speaks through the law that he's written on your conscience, saying, don't do that. Then very often we persist. And so God goes from using his quiet voice to a firm one. Not always. I'm not saying this is guaranteed, but what we find in the scriptures is this is often the progress of God trying to correct because the end result that he wants is for people to turn from their sins and turn to God. God finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God finds no pleasure just as a good parent when they spank their child and their child begins to cry out in agony for what's taking place. No parent revels in their tears. Rather, what is difficult for a parent that really loves their kid is not to pick them up and say, I'm sorry, it's going to be okay. Right? But it's allowing the judgment that you, that you have placed upon that child to do its work. And that is, stop them from continuing on that path. Listen, lost friend today, you've been here for nine days now. Many of you have sat in the house of God over and over and over, and God's spirit has pricked you. And at times you have refused to move, and God has progressively gotten louder in your heart, and he's enabled the testimony of God's people, the preaching of his word, and various circumstances that unfold in your life to continue to speak to your heart. And then sometimes God, by his grace, will pull out a megaphone and begin shouting shouting into your heart that you need to change what you're doing because judgment is going to come. With these people, he starts in verse six and God shows that progressively he was trying to get their attention by a series of things he was doing to them. So the first thing he does is he dries up their bread. They go a little high. Things get a little tough. The pantry's not as well stocked as it once was. And they gotta start working harder. They gotta start being more industrious. They gotta start working harder for their food. And then you remember, did you notice the, I tried to make it in a kind of a repetitive sound, the same phrase that kept arising over and over. He said this, yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. You notice what he's doing there? He's saying, here's what I did, but you didn't return to me. So what does God do? In his grace, he takes it up a notch. And he says, then I allowed a drought to come. Like, you know, these things, when I read them in the scriptures, they almost feel fake because I can't imagine them. About as well as a pandemic would have felt two years ago, right? Like if you would have said, you remember that, that Bill Gates video that went viral that was saying, yeah, I think it was like 2015, he said, you know, one thing the United States is not prepared for is a pandemic. And I remember seeing that before the pandemic, years before. And in my mind, I remember kind of laughing. <laughs> that, like that would ever happen. And now two years later, it doesn't sound so funny, does it? Because we've lived through it. These things to me just seem so far. But I mean, what if really God sent a drought upon our land? And all the technology in the world cannot replace water. So God took it up a notch. And yet he says, yet he did not return unto me, saith the Lord. So then what did he do? Their young men died in battle. He went out. You know, young men often are meant to symbolize, especially in these patriarchal cultures, it's meant to symbolize like the future leadership, right? 
Like this is your strong men. Right now they're in the, the depth of their strength and they're going out and they're fighting for you. And so if a plague in particular hits those young men, it's meant to be an attack on their future strength and posterity. It's meant to be an attack on the core of who they are and the strength that they're going to have both today and the wisdom they're going to have tomorrow. And so he said the next thing, he raised the notch a little bit. He said, I took your young men. Yet... You did not return unto me, saith the Lord. You know, then he gets into this, this one verse. Where is it at? Verse 11. And I don't, I'm going to confess to you, I don't know what it means. But he says, then I did to you what I did to Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, you know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire fell from heaven and destroyed the city. Perhaps that's what happened here. I don't know. Or some semblance of the way God overthrew them was the way that God overthrew these people. Now, if that was the case, that fire and brimstone rained down from heaven and destroyed some of those people, I'm not sure that it is, but if it was, what clear way could God be showing the people that it was his judgment than not by natural things to happen, but something so decisively supernatural, how could you conclude it was not God speaking to you? See, I tend to believe that God speaks in everyday ways and often. I tend to believe, though I don't have any idea the, the exact message God is sending, that many of the things that happen to us, both as a nation and as individuals, is very often directly related to God speaking to us and trying to turn us away from sin. Things like 9-11, things like wars, things like famines and pestilence. I'm not into trying to guess exactly the message, but I know the overarching tone that God is trying to speak to us, and that is you're headed the wrong direction, and you better stop and go the opposite way. And then sometimes things can occur, and you might be able to do so, you know, a drought Chance, a famine, chance. War, somebody attacks us, our young man die, chance. That's how the human mind works, right? We, we, we put those things that God speaks and we push doubt all around them so as not to have to accept the message he's trying to speak to us. And then sometimes God allows things to happen in our life that we know could not have been chance. We know there's no rash, even if you're just going rationally, that a person could say, well, it just, it, you know, it's like a drought. It just happened. No, and you know, those things can be very subtle that nobody else knows about, but that we know God is speaking directly to me. I told you not too long ago, I think, here it's all beginning to run together now, right? Uh, all the times we've been together and things that I've said and things that I haven't. But I remember a preacher getting up at a youth weekend and preaching on a topic and heard it a hundred times. But this arrogant, proud 17-year-old preacher who thought a lot of wrong things. Not only what he was saying, but the manner in which he was saying it, I trembled because I knew God was speaking to me. Like even some of the verbiage that he used, only God would know how deeply that would resonate with me. And so I sat there and I was listening to him. And I felt like, if I don't respond to this message, I am tempting God because I know he is speaking to me. That's what God did here. Here's the point, Law Center. This is a really important point to pick up on. 
he gets to that final point and he says, yet you return not unto me. God sent message after message after message trying to provoke repentance and they rejected all of them. So then what does God say in verse 12? I'm no longer going to send messages. Now prepare for me. I suppose being in the throes of fatherhood, I mean, it just resonates, you know. I'll send little Landry sometimes up to his brothers, give him a message. Be quiet. Go to bed. Emmett will come down and get a drink of water. I'll say, Emmett, you tell Judson, you tell Landry, they better be quiet and in bed. And they'll run on up there and scurry up there. And I even hear him tell them sometimes. And the noise continues and the bouncing and the yelling and the screaming then oftentimes I'll go, and it's my voice this time, and I'll holler up the stairs, boys, okay, Dad. And then it continues. But then there comes a point where it's just an idle threat. And it's not going to do them any good if I keep on giving them warnings, right? Then the, the behavior will just get worse and more dangerous. That's the core of it, right, is that it becomes dangerous, for them. If they persist in disobedience, then they think they can constantly ignore my voice. And then it endangers them and anybody that's up there with them. And so it's not just about what they're doing, it's about the fact that what they're doing will lead to worse things for themselves and everybody around them. Thus, God says, Now to these people, prepare to meet God. His judgment is coming, and there is no escaping it anymore. Lost friend today, do you realize that there will come a day where God says that to every lost person's heart? Where he'll say, okay. I don't, you know, there, there's people out there who say, you know, I, when I'm, I was ten, I'm 10 years old, and I felt like if I didn't seek him tonight, I was never going to find him. Perhaps that's true. Here's my opinion. As long as you have breath in your lungs, seek after God because he wants to save you. Whether God has appointed a time of your decease that may be, you know what? If they reject me one more time, I'm taking them. That's God's prerogative, right? I don't know anything about that, nor is it my business. My business is to say this. God wants to say, save everybody anywhere as long as they're drawing a fleeting breath. God wants to save you. See, God's judgment, it is universal. It's going to happen to everybody. It's progressive and it's fair. It's going to be fair. Here's what I mean by that. I found it fascinating this afternoon as I was reading through the scriptures. I began to try to find an occasion where God judged a group of people and didn't tell them why he judged them. Now, maybe I didn't look hard enough, but I couldn't find one. Preceding God's judgment on every occasion I could find, and if you find something different, tell me. Preceding every occasion where God judged somebody, he says, because you did this, I'm judging you. Where did that start? All the way in the beginning. 
before he punished the serpent, what did he tell him? Because you've come and deceived this woman, you're going to crawl upon the ground the rest of your life. He tells the woman, because you deceived the man, you're going to have to have pain and he punished her. Pain and childbearing. He told the man, because you listened to the woman, you're going to have to sweat, or you're going to have to produce food by the sweat of your brow. You're going to have to work your whole life. Then he goes to Noah in, in Genesis chapter 6, and he looks at the world and the evil of the world, and he says, because the world has rejected me and wickedness has come up, I'm going to judge the world. Before he judged Sodom, and, and, and what is it, Genesis 18, and Abraham is trying to intercede for Sodom. God says that your wickedness has come up greatly before me. I'm going to judge you. Then we go into Exodus and what happens? Oh, the Egyptians. There they have put out the most awful form of slavery on the people of God. And finally God said, enough. And they he sent plagues to warn them over and over and over. And then God sends his judgment because of the rebellion and hardness of heart of Pharaoh and those Egyptian people. And then he judges the Amorites. Oh, he prophesied that judgment. What is it? Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, where he says, until the iniquity of the Amorites be full. What is he talking about? He's saying, you know what? I'm going to withhold judgment from those in the promised land after they come out of captivity in Egypt. I'm going to wait. Until what? Until their sin and iniquity is filled up and I am ready to judge them. And so he waited. And then when their iniquity was full, God judged them. And you go all through the Bible. And what do you find? God does not judge people based on hearsay. God does not judge people because he has something out to get somebody. Rather, what the book of Romans tells us and all through the scriptures is that God is no respecter of persons, which is another amazing thing about his character. If you ever get around somebody you don't like or you can't stand being around, somebody that when you're around you just think, man, I, could, I don't know how you could be married to that person. I don't know how you could be friends or be neighbors or have a dad like that because they're just terrible to be around. Remember this about God. God loves them equally to the person you love the most. God is no respecter of persons. If you're created in his image, he loved and died for you. And he is not going to judge people more harshly because he says, you know what? Your personality isn't quite like one that I like to spend time around. No, God is a fair judge and will levy judgment fairly to everyone. And there will always be a reason Christopher Hitchens died almost 10 years ago now. I think it was December when he died in 2011. He was a, an atheist. You probably didn't know it, but he was one of those guys, those talking, talking heads on, on, on the TV for years that would go on to CNN or all these different things, and he, they'd argue against the existence of God. And he was one of the big ones. He had a real cool accent. He was from Britain. And so a lot of people were drawn to him, I think, partially for that reason. And he famously says, or said rather, many times... Well, if I get to stand before God, and if there is a God, because there's not a God, but if there is a God, and I'm wrong, and I'm going to stand before him, he's going to have a lot of explaining to do. I couldn't think of a more scary thing to say in the whole world than that. And he'd go on, talking about childhood cancer and all these different droughts and famines. And he said, God has some explaining to do. 
In other words, what he was trying to say is, God is so unjust, I'm not going to stand before him in judgment. He's going to have to stand before me in the judgment. Listen, lost friend tonight, I don't believe any of you are that obtuse or that arrogant to think in those terms that blatantly. But I think very often people look and our culture will help you to victimize yourself. That's what they're in the business of doing. Of I'm always a victim to circumstance. I'm always a victim. If there was a better situation, if there was a better preacher, if there was a better church, if I had better parents, if the gospel would come with more power, if I hadn't been uncomfortable in this situation, if I hadn't had this thing happen in my life or that thing happen in my life, then, then, then maybe I would have found God and come to know him. And so if I stand before God, I can use these things. And what God is going to stand before you and say is, listen, I don't have to vindicate myself to you. I actually sent those very hardships in your life because I knew that it would be harder for you to find me without them than with them. Right? What does the Bible teach us? All things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. The very thing that we often count as curses are often the very things God sends in our life because he knows that it is more likely to provoke us to repentance than otherwise. Don't let your own mind or our culture victimize you as if you're somebody who you're going to stand before God and say, I was dealt a bad hand. And God's going to look at you and say, listen, I'm a perfect judge, and I dealt you your hand. And it was fair. And it was your most likely chance to find me, and you rejected me. person does that over and over. You know who I think of tonight? People who should be seeking the Lord but don't. That's who really crosses my mind tonight. People who, they know the truth. They've been taught the truth. And then God, Brother, Brother, Brother Eaton has, has referenced multiple times this week about beating on the, the concrete. You know, just taking a hammer and just beating it and beating it and beating it. Those are the people I'm talking to tonight. Those people whom God has levied thing after thing and he has tried in all of these ways to break your heart. And maybe at times he's chipped away little pieces of your defense, little pieces of your heart. And yet you stand stubbornly, unwilling to repent and come and to seek after him that you might find him precious to you. you those of you who are saying, you know what? I'm going to stonewall. I'm going to be tough. I'm not going to seek the Lord. Or rather, I'll do it on my own terms, at my own place, when I feel like I need to. Listen, there comes a point where God says, okay, prepare to meet me. Tonight, I plead with you this evening, has God spoke with you? Has God sent situations in your life that you may not fully understand, but it is his attempt to turn you to repent of your sins and put faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and you continuously turn away? The final message that God can give is prepare to meet thy God. We referenced last night, and I'm going to close this drastically if you'd get us a song. That, that rich man had all of his faculties, 
That's such an important story because it's one of the few where we get a glimpse into eternity. It's the only one I know of that I can at least think of right up here that where we get a glimpse into hell. It's not only to, important to remember that he had his senses, he felt, he tasted, he, he, could, he, could, he could remember. It's not just important to remember those things. It's also important to know what he remembered. Not just that he could remember, but what he remembered. I think his sight of Lazarus and us now is, is God saying or of him remembering the opportunities that he had towards righteousness and he rejected it. Tonight, if you're here and you're lost, if you've never made a move towards God privately, publicly, what does God have to do? In closing, this is what I want to say. If, I, if my boys, when they grow up, I pray that they're like my dad. My dad was lost for one minute of his whole life. One minute. End of the sermon, God told him he was lost. He went up front. He bowed down. He said, it could have been more than 30 seconds, and God spoke peace to my heart. One minute of his life, he was lost. I hope all four of my boys are that way. If I've learned anything, that's doubtful, right? You know, if, if I had a really stubborn one, really stubborn, and they're getting up in the age where the evil days were about to come, you know, those days where youth and innocence are slowly fleeting, and they're getting, and I started to, to sense in their personality that they had some sort of a rebellious, renegade heart. You know what I would do? I would offer myself to God. That's what I would do. I'm not, I'm not telling, I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm trying to tell lost people how desperate that it is their condition. I would say, God, paralyze me if you need to. Do whatever it takes to reach my lost son. Use me. Because listen, if we knew what hell was like, a lifetime of the most torturous life on earth would be well worth saving the soul of any person. Be well worth it. This is temporary and fleeting. Lost friend tonight. That's how serious it is. I can't, you know, I've, I've thought before one of the worst things is if you couldn't speak anymore. Couldn't tell people what you wanted, you know. Even if you were paralyzed, you at least have your voice. Say, hey, I like this, I don't like this, I want this, I don't want this. Imagine you're just trapped in your mind. I would say, Lord, if that terrible type of an accident would bring my son to come and know you, here I am. Lost friend, that's how serious it is tonight. If God is dealing with your heart, seek him.